And as I start, I just want to say that my wife and I, our kids, have been here for about five months now. I'm part of your church community, and it really feels like ours now. You've been so loving and welcoming to our family, and we're just so glad to be a part of what God's doing in this place. So just want to thank you off the bat for that. Jeff will be back with us next week. He's away this weekend, but he looks forward um, to being back, um, and he just wanted to say hello. Um, we are in a series called The Bible, based on the television miniseries by Mark Burnett and Roma Downey. And when they set out to make this four-year-long project of this miniseries, they had no idea the impact it would have. They hoped it would have an impact, but how could they have known that over 100 million people would have watched it? And just recently, it's become the number one DVD sold of all time globally, worldwide. So we are in a series entitled The Bible, and we're looking at different key moments in the history of the Bible, key major stories, these pivotal moments in history. When we started, we looked at the story of creation, and then we moved into the story of God's people, looking at people like Abraham and King David. The last couple of weeks, we've looked at the life of Jesus, and this morning, we're going to take a look at the cross. One could argue that the cross is the most important moment in history, a focal point the hope and future of us all lies in the balances of how this story plays out. All of the Old Testament stories point to this moment. And in the New Testament, it either points to the cross or looks back at what took place on the cross. The cross is where history was changed. And the trajectory of humanity changed as a result of what took place on the cross. And you know what? All we need to do is just open our eyes going throughout our day and we'll see crosses everywhere we go. It doesn't take long to see an image of the cross. In fact, this past week I Googled um, in the Google line cross-shaped stuff. And you'd be amazed at what I found. Here's a couple images that I saw while looking. A tattoo, pretty common. Some of you, who has a tattoo cross? Some of you may have that. A lot of different types of tattoos, tattoo crosses. From Heavenly Creations, a cross-shaped cookie with extra heavenly frosting. Have any of you ever had one of these? Amazingly delicious. Next. A USB port. It's a necklace, and all the information of the universe is captured right in that cross. Next. Popsicles. Not only is it a delicious treat, but Jesus is right there at the end on the cross, kind of disturbing. Bubbles, heavenly, joyful bubbles with every blow of joy permeates out. Testaments, tell me you've never had a testament, please, tell me. Evil, bad breath, one testament, it's gone. Gone, 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 next, or gum. What kind of power strip do you have? Ultimate power of the universe, captured right there in the cross, next. Air freshener, for bad, that's not very funny, is it? Air freshener, spiritual air freshener, kind of weird, strange. Next. Holy cow. Kind of weird, very, very strange. And lastly, I think this is last, a, a MP3 player, which I understand automatically deletes non-Christian music, which I found very, very, just kidding, very strange. And last image, right there, a baptismal, which actually is kind of cool. I don't know how they dug that out, image of a cross. 
And I keep saying lastly, but this is the last one. Last picture of the cross. You know, there are all kinds of images of the cross, aren't there? From the ridiculous and outlandish to ones that are even somewhat meaningful. And what we discover is sometimes Christians can make the cross weird. And oftentimes, the world doesn't quite know what to do with it. So the questions we're going to look at this morning are this. What is the significance of the cross? And what did Jesus accomplish by dying on this piece of wood just over 2,000 years ago? Ultimately, what we want to look at today is what does the death and eventual resurrection of Jesus mean for you and I today? As we begin, would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love and for your grace and that the work you continue to do in our life, God. We are so grateful. And Lord, we pray this morning in these few moments, would you open our hearts and open our minds to receive what you have uniquely for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, once wrote, The crucifixion did not become common in art until all who had seen one died off. You see, in the first century, the cross wasn't some flowery metaphor or something that you'd wear around your neck. The cross was a Roman execution device, one of the most cruel ways you could torture someone. So it begs the question, what faith system would come up with the idea of making the cross their logo? You know, it's almost like if we took a small guillotine and wore that around our neck, right? Or took a, um, a, an electric chair and made that our logo. What's the deal with the cross? Why is the cross the center of the Christian faith? You know, the irony is this, that although the cross symbolized the very worst society had to offer, God turned it upside down and made it the very symbol of hope and healing and promise for all time. This morning, we're going to take a look at three different sections of the Bible that relate to the cross. We're going to start in Exodus, we're going to move to Ephesians, and then end in the Gospel of Luke. So if you would, if you'd open up your Bibles, if you brought one to Exodus chapter 12, if you don't have your Bible inside the bulletin, the verses are printed out, or you can see them on the screen. We're going to start in Exodus and we're going to start by looking at this concept called propitiation, which means the appeasing of God's wrath. Wrath, of course, is a very popular subject to teach on. I'm glad I'm starting with that in my first time teaching. I'm sure you came looking forward to hearing about that today. But I do want to say as we talk about wrath, you're going to start to understand what it means a bit more deeply. But as we look at Exodus chapter 12, we're starting by looking at the story of God's deliverance of his people out of slavery. This is the identity story of Israel, the most important story in their history. And the situation is this. The sons of Jacob, the tribes of Israel, are in bondage. They're in slavery to Egypt, and they have been for hundreds of years in forced labor. And for generations, they've been crying out to God to be made free, for God to free them. So God sets out to free his people by raising up Moses and giving him a partner in Aaron. 
So, for the first 11 chapters of Exodus, God sets forward to free his people. And he does so with what we know as the ten plagues. But they weren't really plagues as much as they were significant, magnificent displays of power targeted at specific Egyptian deity. So, when you look at the plague of the hail, the plague of the frogs, or of darkness, it's not God just kind of firing stuff out, wondering if it's going to work. But with each plague that is sent, God is systematically dismantling the Egyptian religious system. He's taking a deity within their culture and systematically eliminating it, one by one. Well, we have the first nine plagues, and then the tenth plague comes. And as we look at this text, I want to draw your attention to a couple things that you'll see in just a moment as it relates to the cross. So Exodus chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. This event was so big that God's going to introduce that he says, This will mark the beginning of your year, marking it with a sacrifice. And the scripture says that if you have a small household, team up with another household and make a sacrifice, but this will begin your year. Verse 5, the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Verse 12. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both of people and animals, and I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as the festival of the Lord. There are ten plagues, and Israel is immune to nine of them simply by being Israel. But on the tenth plague, no distinction was made. God said, I'm coming through, and you actually need to do something to be immune from the plague. And he does this as an act of judgment. Now, this night, Israel has two problems. What are they? Problem number one, they're enslaved to Pharaoh. They're in bondage to Pharaoh and have been for hundreds of years. But problem number two is this. God's wrath and judgment are coming, and they need to do something about it. And God does and did what he always does, is he provides a way for his people God set forward for them a way to be protected. And he did this through the Passover lamb. Now, how would Israel have seen this episode of God initiating in this way? How would they have viewed this episode? Well, number one, they would have seen God as judge. Knowing that God hates sin, he opposes our evil, and he works against it. You know, as, as we read through the scriptures and find different attributes of God, one that's spoken so often of is God's holiness. And in the Hebrew scriptures, they didn't italicize words or embolden them to highlight the point or the word. 
What they did is they repeated it over and over again. So time and time throughout the Bible, cover to cover, we'll read a phrase like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, 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 meaning that God is holy, perfect, set apart, set apart, blameless, without sin. That God is perfect and we are not. That we are sinful people in need of a Savior. The idea is that Israel would have understood God as judge. That he won't tolerate idolatry or false gods of any kind. Hence the plagues. However, they would have also seen God as redeemer. They would have seen God as redeemer because they knew there was nothing they could do to get rid of the plagues, to overcome God's wrath. They knew there was nothing they could do in themselves to become immune to what was coming. They knew that God had to provide a way, that God had to provide a sacrifice. And he did with the lamb that was without defect, anointing the doorposts. The second thing I want you to notice is this, that God is a covenant God. That God is a covenant God, that in doing this whole act, he was reinforcing his relationship with Israel by giving them something to do, to act in their salvation. You see, it wasn't enough for them to have their neighbor put blood on their doorpost, the neighbor to do it. They needed to do it too. They needed to do something. And the point is this. They had to individually take advantage of this redemption. The gift was available to them, but they had to decide to act upon it, to claim it as their own. You know, when I was in college, I had a really good friend of mine who was sophomore year, and he won a trip for two to Cancun on the radio. Can you imagine? College student, trip for two to Cancun. And when he told me this, I said, man, that's amazing. When are you going? And more importantly, who are you taking with you? And I said, man, what are we going to do? And I said this, and he goes, he goes oh, I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to go. And I said, what are you talking about? What do you mean you're not going to go? Uh, are you going to give it to somebody as a gift? And he said, oh, I'm not giving it as a gift because they said I need to take it, otherwise the trip's void. And he goes, I just really don't feel like going. He goes, I don't like to travel, and we've got a beach right here, and I don't really even like to go to the beach, and you get sand all over you. And I'm listening to this craziness thinking, who is this person? This is the best gift of a lifetime. And how selfish that he could at least sit in the hotel room, right, while a dear friend, right, could enjoy it. Like, how selfish is this? And he goes, I just don't want to do it. And he meant it. And I'm thinking to myself, you're a college student. You have no money. Who turns down a free gift? I couldn't believe it. I still can't believe it. I'm still upset by that. Just kidding. Not really. Still, still upset. For Israel, God gives them this gift. No strings attached. It's there for the taking. And all God asks them to do is claim it, to receive it and take advantage of it. Last thing I want you to see in this moment of history, in this story, is this. A whole community was formed around this act of Passover. God formed a whole community around it. 
to signify that God saved the people from something, sin, death, and captivity, to something, life, freedom, relationship with God. And this Passover meal, this communal meal, was to be celebrated time and time again to remember what God did. And if you talk to any Jewish person, they will tell you that Passover is a big deal and is celebrated time and again. To recap, Israel faces two problems, slavery and God's wrath. And what does God do? He reveals himself as judge and redeemer. He invites the people into a covenant relationship with him. And then he forms them into communities that will celebrate this act for generations to come. Shockingly, you and I have the same problem as Israel did. In the New Testament letters, Paul presents Jesus the same way as as was presented in Exodus, as the Passover lamb. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2 now, beginning at verse 1. And in this text, Paul is speaking to a group of Christians that have gathered, and he's talking about what life is like for us before we come to Christ. And Paul writes this in Ephesians 2, verse 1. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying their cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of death and of wrath. Notice this. He says, like the rest, we were deserving of wrath. In other words, you and I have the same problem. Number one, you and I are dead to our sin. We're not enslaved to a a pharaoh and in bondage that way, but we are enslaved to sin. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. And as if that wasn't bad enough that we have sin within us, the Bible says that there's an adversary, a devil that comes after us that's seeking to destroy us as well. So we're dead in our sin, but secondly, we're also natures of God's wrath. Now we have to talk about this word wrath a little bit to really understand what it means. Because when we hear the word wrath, we might think of somebody who just is flying off the handle, right? or somebody who's completely irrational or way disproportionate from what's actually taking place and how they're reacting. But when the Bible talks about wrath, and what the Bible means about wrath is this. Wrath is God's ongoing and vigorous opposition to evil. The evil in the world and the evil that's within us. What Paul is saying is this, that sin is in us, And that God opposes our sin and seeks to deal with it. You know, a Gallup poll was recently taken of over 3,000 evangelical churches, Christian churches, and they interviewed just Christians, thousands of them, and they gave them an either-or question to respond to. And the question was this. Do you think humanity is inherently bad and then God helps make them good and turn them into good people? Or do you think that people are inherently good with just some bad parts of them that God's fixing and and redeeming. Does that make sense? That's the question. Inherently good or inherently bad? 
78% of Christians said that people are by and large inherently good. Or just a little badness that God's trying to fix. Just kind of a scary. The Bible tells us it's the opposite, that we're born as sinful people into a broken world. We're born sinful people. And if you don't believe that, all you need to do is look at any little kid, little child, and you don't have to teach them to be selfish, do you? You have to teach a child to give, right? You have to teach them to give. We're all born broken, sinful people. So I ask you, does God love us? Yes. Does God hate our sin? Yes. And here's the good news. The cross is where wrath and love meet. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says it this way in verse 4. He says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's this idea of God's wrath and righteous anger and love coinciding and coexisting. Here's two quick pictures maybe that will help you understand it a bit more. Say you're a parent and you walk into your child's room and there's a stranger in that room torturing your child. Would it not be immoral to feel rage and wrath in that moment and wanting to rescue your child from that pain? Or put another way, someone you dearly, dearly love has cancer that's eating away at their body and they have three months to live and they will die. Would you not hate the cancer and do all that you could in your power to remove that out of love? When we look, I know those aren't perfect examples, but when we look at wrath of God towards our sin and at the same time a loving God that cares about us deeply, that's maybe the clearest picture we get of that, that God loves us so much that he sent his son to die on a cross for us so that we might live, justifying the wrath of, of sin once and for all so that we can live in Christ. All four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, share the crucifixion story and the resurrection. And as we come in, in here to land today, we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. At this moment in history, the crucifixion, and it says this, when they came to the place called the skull, and I'll stop there for a moment. The skull was also known as Golgotha, where they would crucify the hardest of criminals. And you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about Abraham? And God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his son, on Mount Moriah. And remember, right before Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, God said, no, wait. I've got a replacement sacrifice. And in the thicket, there was a, a ram, a, a lamb that was without defect. And God said, sacrifice that lamb. Remember that? That location where that moment happened with Abraham and Isaac was just yards away from where Jesus, also known as the Lamb of God, was crucified. Basically the same area. Isn't that interesting? So verse 33 says, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. 
There are criminals on the right and left of Jesus. Roman citizens could not be crucified, but anyone else that had done something that was evil and wrong, in heinous, a heinous crime, anyone who was a danger to Roman society would be crucified on a cross. The harshest, worst of criminals. And Jesus is between two criminals. And in this moment, Jesus is humiliated. He's cursed. For the belief was anyone who was nailed to a tree was cursed. And Jesus was suffering. He was suffocating. He was bleeding out. and tearing of the skin and his ligaments. And while Jesus hung on this cross, people mocked him. People sneered at him, saying, if you really are the king of the Jews, get yourself off the cross. Verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Fear means reverence, not afraid of. Don't you fear God, since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then Jesus said, then he said to Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. There are two thieves. One mocks Jesus. He has no remorse or repentance in his heart, only arrogance and self-interest. But the other thief, the other thief is a model to us all. This other thief is the first person in this whole drama to equate what God is doing with what Jesus is doing. He also admits his guilt, and he confesses his sin, and he professes that Jesus is Lord. And he knows that Jesus is the Son of God. And through those eyes of faith, he says, remember me. Now this criminal would be dead probably within the hour. And he had no opportunity to make things right, to do enough good deeds in his life for God to forgive him and say he's a good person. He was going to die. And yet this man received eternal life with God, forgiveness of his sins, life everlasting. The same reward someone who knew Jesus from the age of a child and followed God his entire life or her entire life who would go to heaven, this criminal received the same reward. And you might be thinking, that's crazy. That's not fair. It isn't. That's grace. Right? That's what grace is. Getting what we utterly don't deserve. And finally, verse 43, it says this. It was about noon, and darkness came over the land until, there were, until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. What is the significance of the cross and what Jesus accomplished on the cross? Jesus, by dying on a cross, 
and rising again made us right with God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus was on the cross, he took all of our sins, past, present, and future. Any sin you've ever committed or will commit till the day you die, or I'll, I've committed, Jesus took on the cross and paid for once and for all so that we wouldn't have to pay. And what does Jesus' death and resurrection mean for us today? That we have life. That we're given life. And this life that we're given isn't only a ticket to heaven that when we come to faith in Jesus, we punch the ticket, and then we just kind of wait for Jesus to come back so we can spend eternity with God. And boy, if that's all we receive, that would be amazing. But Jesus says, and we read throughout the New Testament, that we're given life today. And to have life abundantly. That God gives us life today to live as redemptive people. To be redeemers of the world with Jesus. And to take part in his kingdom work. You know, I, I know for a fact here today, I'm just convinced of it, that there are those of you here that feel like you've sinned so much in your life or are such a broken person that God could never forgive you. Or even if God did forgive you, that God could never use your story for good. That in some way you've done enough bad in your life that you've disqualified yourself from God's grace. You've disqualified yourself perhaps of being used for his kingdom work. But that couldn't be further from the truth. You know, I grew up in the, the great state of Wisconsin. Thank you. I'm so happy you guys love Wisconsin. There's a little turn right there. Cheesehead country, um, state of the world. I grew up in Wisconsin, and my dream as most people in Wisconsin was to either head left to the east coast, or right, or is that the right deal, or whatever. Go, go to east coast or west coast. I wanted to come to California, and my goal was to get to California, although I, became, I came out to be a student at Concordia University in Irvine. That got me out here. But my goal was to either be a professional baseball player, an actor, or a rock star. And I told God, any of the three, you choose, anyone I'll do. Those are the three choices. That was my goal. And shortly after coming to school, I wandered into Mariner's Church. Some friends brought me, and that weekend, my first time there, the new youth pastor was speaking, and he said he was recruiting a team of volunteers to work with high school students. And I said, that sounds like fun. My two friends and I signed up, and we got involved. And my plan was to sit in the background for quite a while, until I got comfortable and got settled in. But within like three weeks, I was just assigned a small group. And the leader said, I need you to lead this small group of these students. And there were six guys at first. And these weren't just any students. These were the coolest kids at Corona Del Mar High School. Like the most popular kids, OK? Most popular guys. Half of them had agents. There were like two professional surfers. Some of the guys were in a rock band. Like, these are the guys. And for a while, they partied every weekend. But for some reason, they never missed small group on Wednesday nights. I think it's probably because their parents drove them there. But they never missed. And they were there week after week. And I can remember in the beginning, my hands were so clammy at first. I'd sit in the car 20 minutes outside the house, just going over my lesson plan. My hands were like I was nervous, clammy. I went in and teach a lesson. And week after week, I didn't know if they got it. And I kind of felt like, uh, am I making any impact? 
One week, in fact, I, I spoke on how far is too far in a dating relationship. And I had a chart, a nice little chart, a little line that went across with markers. Have any of you gone through that excruciating lesson? And I remember the guys just sitting there looking at each other like, is, is this guy for real? This guy, what's going on here? Just humiliating. Well, fast forward three months. I feel like a failure. Camp Surf is coming up for a weekend getaway. And I think to myself, I'm going to go on this trip. And if I don't feel connected by the end of this trip, I'm probably going to like transition out. So we go to Camp Surf down in San Diego. I don't know if you guys know this about Wisconsin. There's not much surfing happening. It wasn't much of a surfer. I went in the water the first 10 minutes, got out, and spent the whole weekend holding everyone's towels, <laughs> waving at everyone, kind of high fives, and yeah, it was lame. Fast forward, final night, we're all around the campfire. Campfire's going, students are all in their, um, their beach chairs, and you know, roasting marshmallows, great time, and the leaders come up front to do a skit. And I get cast, somewhat against my will, as guess what, a surfer. They put a wig on me, gave me a surfboard, and I'm in this sketch. One by one, the volunteers say their lines. Everyone's laughing at everything they have to say. It's hilarious. Then they get to my moment, and I say my lines. And Lord help me, I wish I could forget these words, but they're haunted, haunting me. They stay in my head. But it was something like this. I said, hey, dudes, the surf's great right now. Let's go out. Hang loose. crickets. I don't know if they like just totally felt sorry for me or if they just thought I was the biggest loser in the entire world. But I can remember walking back at that moment, walking back to my tent and I was done. I was walking back and I was going to tell a leader I was sick and I was getting in my car and leaving in the next 10 minutes. I was humiliating. Well, I go walking out and this kid, Chris, comes up to me. He had been new to my small group. He had come for about a month. And he'd come and he goes, Mike, can I talk to you for a moment? And I said, um, yeah, what's going on? And he said, Mike, you know what? I know I'm new to the group, um, the small group, and the, the guys have been so welcoming and inviting. But I got to tell you, I just don't feel like I fit in here. And everyone's been nice, but I, I kind of came, Mike, on this trip to see if I could finally start connecting. And I just still didn't feel it. And then I watched you tonight, Mike, in that skit, just humiliate yourself. And, <laughs> That's what he said. And he said, I realize now I can fit here. He said that. Like everyone can belong here. And you know what? During that night, Chris and I talked for a few hours. And we found out that we both came from pretty messed up homes that our parents divorced at young age. Our dads were alcoholics. We found out we had similar stories and not feeling like we fit in oftentimes. And this is what I took away from that, that time, is I tried all these things to make myself look good, and like, if I could just use all my strengths, God would use it. But do you know what he used? He used my brokenness. He used a part of myself that I was embarrassed and ashamed of. My weakness is what God used. And at that moment, God called me to ministry out of my brokenness. You know what, as we prepare for our response time, I want to encourage you that God loves you. That God cares about you deeply. 
and that God's ultimate desire is to have a relationship with you. I'm going to invite Ethan to come up in, in the band, and we're going to have a time of response by doing what we normally practice at on Good Friday, and that's nailing our sins to the cross. Inside your bulletin, there's a blank piece of paper, and if you want to pull it out right now, and I think there's a pencil there you received on the way in. And we're going to take some time as we respond today to reflect on the, the sin in our life that holds us captive that we want to lay at the cross. And this, whatever you write down just between you and God, no one's going to see it. You don't need to write your name down. It's between you and God. But what I want to ask you is where do you feel captive in your life right now? What sin do you feel in bondage to that you either keep repeating or you're sitting with that you just once and for all want to let go of and give to, to God? I'm going to give you a moment to write that down in a moment. But I also want to encourage you to do this. Maybe there's an area of your life that you feel like God could never redeem in your story. That maybe you've doubted that God could ever use for his glory to, to make a beautiful out of what was broken and to change, and even be part of his redemptive work in the world. And maybe you want to write that down too and bring that to the cross today. Would you pray with me, God, we love you. And in this moment, Lord, would we be reminded of what you did on the cross 2,000 years ago? That you paid the price that we could never pay so that we might have relationship with you now and forevermore. So Lord, in this moment, would you bring to mind what you want us to lay before you, God, and would you cleanse us, would you renew us, would you refresh us, would you draw close to us now? In Jesus' name, amen.